Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, Jason. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Remember, you can always catch us every week on your favorite Catholic radio station, or if you miss an episode, you can always go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. And now you can catch us on our YouTube channel as well. Jason, we've got a great conversation ahead. Who are you speaking with? Oh, we're talking to one of my old friends, Professor James R. Stoner Jr. of Louisiana State University. He wrote a really compelling piece in the online journal Law and Liberty called Vaccination, the Law and the Common Good, really taking an in-depth look of the 1905 Supreme Court case, uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, that has become kind of the lodestar precedent of a lot of judicial decisions around COVID-19 and pandemic-related uh, mandates and cases. So we're going to unpack that case and talk about judicial decision-making and the principles that apply with Professor Stoner, who is one of the really great minds in this area. That's great. I know I started to look into it just a little bit, and it'll be a great topic for any of our history buffs out there. It's really kind of fascinating. I'll be interested to hear, you know, some of those parallels that he might be able to draw between that case and where we're at today and whether maybe these longstanding precedents need to be overturned. So anyone who's watching or listening, remember, you can always send us your discussion ideas send us an email. The address is show at mncatholic.org, or just leave your ideas as a comment on the YouTube channel or on social media. I'll be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined on the Bridge Builder by Dr. James Stoner Jr. He is the Herman Moisa Jr. Professor and Director of the Eric Vogelin Institute in the Department of Political Science at Louisiana State University. Dr. Stoner is the author of Common Law Liberty, an outstanding book, And he's also the editor of four books, most recently, The Political Thought of the Civil War. He earned his bachelor's degree from Middlebury College and his MA and PhD from Harvard University. He's been a visiting professor and fell in the James Madison program at Princeton University, and he's taught at LSU since 1988. We brought Professor Stoner on the show to talk a little bit about judicial decision-making and the Jacobson case that's being used in all the uh, pandemic jurisprudence. So welcome to the Bridge Builder program. Professor Stoner, it's great to be with you. Well, thank you, Jason. It's great to be here. Uh, What got you interested in studying judicial opinions and the principles judges use to inform their decision-making processes? Well, I don't know. That interest goes back to uh, uh, when I was in junior high school and uh, first studying the Constitution. I learned about the way it was written and uh, the process that went into that. We actually wrote one in junior high. I think we kind of messed up student government by doing it, but in any event, we had a constitutional convention and the whole thing. And, uh, and, and um, my interest just sort of um, uh, remained after that. And when I got to a college course on American political thought, it just grabbed me. And uh, I took that. I took courses on um, uh, American constitutional law. I then studied political theory as well. And uh, my first book, which grew out of my dissertation, was about uh, the Constitution in relation to political theory. And what I added to it was uh, a study of English common law or some understanding of the way of thinking of English common law, because that seemed to me to be what had grown uh, quite neglected in our constitutional tradition. And uh, that's, that's been 
my own particular take on American constitutional law to try to understand the common law dimensions of it. And, you know, it's interesting from the point of view of, uh, of, of Catholic things, the common law grew out of Catholic England. Mm -hmm. And it was a secular law that nevertheless laid, left room always, and in a way, sort of gently supported Christian, a Christian life and Christian practice. And so many of the many elements of common law, uh, everything, I think, from the presumption of innocence, which is so central to it, to something like the definition of marriage or so forth, are coming out of Christian, Christian practice and Christian law. You recently wrote a piece that piqued my interest. It was called Vaccination and the Common Good. And there's a whole series of cases in involving jurisprudence about how to deal with a pandemic and what are the limits of government power. But it, it touches on this phrase that we hear a lot about, but some people seem to have trouble getting their heads around, including me sometimes. What is the common good? Well, let me start with what it means in political theory, as I understood it, right? Common, common good would be that which is shared within a society and not capable of being broken up and privatized, right? I mean, and yet, and yet, for the classical political theor theorists, Plato and Aristotle, the common good was virtue <laughs> or the, uh, the promotion of virtue among the people and then a people that was virtuous. So in that sense, the common good was everyone's good and it was something shared. For virtue is certainly an individual thing. Uh, it requires <laughs> formation, the right formation of character, right? But it's also something where we all have an interest in each other being virtuous. You know, the modern definitions of the common good tend to revolve around money. <laughs> you know, as Rousseau said, if I could quote Rousseau on this broadcast, you know, the ancients always talked about virtue, the moderns just talk about money. And nowadays people tend to think of the common good as access to the public treasury or something of that sort. But but that wasn't what was originally there. And above all, among the virtues, the one that was particularly important for the common is justice. So sometimes it will even be said that justice is the common good. Now, it's also true, I guess, that in political theory, you could see a kind of tension between justice and the common good, since justice includes give distributive justice, right? And giving to each his own and what he deserves individually, or what a person deserves individually, or what a family deserves, or what a firm deserves or what a school deserves. And there could be some common things that aren't divisible in this way. So it's a matter of interest to all of us that society be, for example, well-educated, uh, for example, in our constitutional processes, right? And in our constitutional government and our regime and what it stands for. But it also, education is also a private good and something which different ones of us would want to pursue in different ways. So when we get to, to jurisprudence, I like to say that the common good includes the common law. <laughs> and that in some ways for our founders, there were certain elements of the common good. You can find them in the, uh, the preamble to the constitution, right? Our common defense, our, our general welfare. Uh, those are elements of the common good. But so is this, this common law, which would be a kind of a reflection of the virtues by which we live, our, our justice, right? Our, our basic understanding of justice as we practice it in daily life. And uh, that's what underlies uh, common law, I think. And, and that would be, I think, what's most fundamental about the common good. Now, 
In this context, of course, the common good has to do with the question of public health. And here again, we've got a situation where we've got to relate public health to individual health. Uh, back at the time of uh, the passing of Obamacare, I wrote a little piece in the public discourse about trying to think through the question of health care. I said there that the key thing to understand is that each person is at least primarily responsible for his own health because no one can make you healthy without your consent. <laughs> to be healthy requires that you participate. That would be the first principle uh, in understanding health, that it's first and foremost something that you must take care of. And then I would suppose public health is concerned with those things which, well, again, we, we kind of have in common or ways in which we could harm each other if we're not, um, if we're not taking care of our own health. So we might say that just to summarize that a, a common good is something in which we can all participate and is not diminished in any way by our participation. And likewise, though the common good is often pitted against personal autonomy, the two are not mutually exclusive because uh, theoretically our own individual participation in the common good should be you know, consistent with our own individual well-being. Is that a good summary? Oh, sure. I would agree with that. With, with maybe this slight emendation, I don't know if I would say personal autonomy because I would say we live under a common law to some, uh, to some extent at least, even though we make all sorts of decisions for ourselves, especially in a free society as ours has always been. And a good emendation because uh, autonomy is, has its own limits and is, is the way in which we frame political issues in the left-right binary. Professor Stoner, how would you say that in, in terms of the use of the common good to describe uh, in moral imperatives and uh, the, the judgments of politicians and public officials and the moral exhortations about what we should or should not do, during this pandemic, how, how have you seen the common good approached and understood properly? And how has it, that term been abused, in your opinion? As I've been thinking about what's been going on, because I mean, I've been absolutely astonished, I have to say, at the ease with which public officials have decided to impose themselves on our persons, first by this massive shutdown and limitation of people even appearing in public space, then by requiring us to be masked or, or something of that sort, even outside in some places where it, does, it, it never seemed to make any sense, but in other circumstances, maybe it does. And then, of course, now with the requirement that in some places that to participate in any kind of commercial activity or maybe even to hold a job, public officials think they can order, order you to get a particular vaccine. Here's the catch. It seems to me that it's not always that the theory is wrong, but the practice has been so disordered. The powers that are being invoked are invoked for something like the Black Plague. I mean, they, they were designed for something like the Black Plague or smallpox, which were very contagious and very dangerous diseases. It seems to me that this particular disease, at first, we didn't know the level of its danger. Now it's clear that it's dangerous mostly to the very old or to those with other conditions. And even then, I don't think that the statistics, the health statistics have yet sorted out. I don't even know if they have a, a good health definition of the difference between dying with COVID and dying of COVID. Uh, for every death 
is, is simple, as best I understand, is a death by illness uh, of someone who tested positive for COVID. So, I mean, that person could have five or six different diseases and they're counted as a COVID death if, if they tested positive for it, but it, 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 it's not as you might think when people say people have died of COVID, you would think that was the cause that seized a healthy person and, and led them and became fatal. In fact, as best I understand, again, this is a factual matter. I'm not an epidemiologist. I, I don't claim to any, any, any kind of specific, any kind of professional knowledge on this, just sort of what one can pick up as best one can uh, as the general knowledge of it. Uh, this is a disease that, that is particularly dangerous to the, to the very old or the otherwise ill. And that's serious, but it's a disease that is almost unnoticeable in most young people and certainly in children. And the response has shown no or very little awareness of that difference, or it took an awful long time for it to, and it's not clear to me yet that it does. That's a good segue into talking about the Jacobson versus Massachusetts case and the application of judicial precedents and decision-making. What, what was that case about, this 1905 case, um, a Massachusetts compulsory vaccination law, but it's become kind of the lodestar in judicial decision-making during this pandemic on a whole host of questions, church openings, uh, vaccinations, mask requirements, et cetera, et cetera. What was that case about, and why did the justices in that case uphold the Massachusetts law? The, the case concerned a requirement of vaccination when uh, demanded by a public health board in a city when there was a danger of smallpox. There was an outbreak of smallpox. Apparently, it spread around the country in the first decade of the 20th century. And when it hit Massachusetts, there was a law in place that allowed the public health board to require vaccination. Now, at that time, this is not generally known, I don't think, the word vaccination meant inoculation for smallpox. Uh, that's where the vax comes from. It's from the cow. The cow. And for mm -hmm. cow, and it's from yep. cowpox, which was the similar disease, which was discovered that could stimulate the immune system of people to protect them against this horrible disease, smallpox. Smallpox was a disease that apparently killed one in three people who got it, killed them, and then it marked many others, and they'd carry those marks on their bodies for life. So it's a disease that you can see why there was tremendous concern about it. And even so, the law was you had to get the vaccination or pay a $5 fine. And as best as $5, I, I imagine that would be a fine of $100 or somewhere, maybe, maybe $500, but somewhere in that range. It was a serious fine at the time, but uh, not an overwhelming fine. This was fought by a minister I think he was Swedish background or something of that sort. He had he personally had a terrible reaction to a vaccine in Sweden when he was a child, and so was very hesitant to get the vaccine. But he didn't plead that in the case. Uh, in fact, the court kind of acknowledged that what we would call a medical exemption would have to be given if someone's doctor and authority could, could say this is a person who seems to be in more danger of the vaccine than of the from the vaccine than from the disease. But that wasn't what he pled. What he pled was a general personal right, like a right to autonomy, I guess one could say. And the court said, well, no, there isn't such a right that would overwhelm 
the need to take care of public health in a circumstance with a disease like that. I think the court in that case took for granted a couple things. One was the severity of the disease. Secondly, they referred to what they called judicial knowledge or common knowledge. And what they meant by that was long established uh, knowledge of the effectiveness of a vaccination. It had been around for about 100 years, a little over 100 years at this point, of its effectiveness, of its general safety, and, and then knowledge of the danger of the disease. And, and so all of that was supposed, I think, in the case and weighed by the justices. And in that context, they found the common good in that sense outweighed any other sort of vague liberty claim. It is curious because the case, it, it ignores the tradition of common law of bodily, if not autonomy, at least control over your body. English law was particularly sensitive to any sort of assault on the body. And you might remember uh, how much it celebrates the notion of habeas corpus, right? Mm -hmm. To have the body. <laughs> and, and that means no imprisonment without judicial process and no, no arbitrary imprisonment. So that law took the ability of a person to just move about freely, ordinarily. That was the overwhelming presumption. And the court doesn't really address that in this case, but it's in the background. It was in the law. It certainly didn't abrogate. Mm -hmm. And uh, it simply said that common knowledge is, in this case, uh, in the case of a, of a smallpox outbreak, it was serious enough to warrant this law, which would fine anyone who wasn't, uh, who didn't get vaccinated. Is the case one factually oriented case uh, dealing with that specific issue of vaccines in a smallpox outbreak and should be limited to its facts? Or is it a case that applies generally to the scope of the state's police power to protect I, I, public health? Exactly. I think that's what needs to, uh, I think that's what needs examination. And that's what isn't getting examination, at least in the initial cases that came up. And I could say a couple things about that. One is in the same year as, if you'll let me go into a little constitutional law, in the same year as Jacobson, a few months later, in fact, I think it was argued a week later, later the same week even, um, was the case of Lochner v. New York, which became so famous or notorious. Uh, for the courts striking down a, a maximum hours law, I think it was for bakers that had been established in the state of New York on the grounds of um, individual liberty of contract or kind of individual autonomy in that way. And there were several different dissents in the case, but the principal dissents are by Justice Harlan and Justice Holmes. And Justice Holmes writes this theoretical dissent, which is read by every law student, that says the Constitution doesn't enact Herbert Spencer's social statics and uh, all these questions about economic regulation are simply to be left to the legislature and not the court shouldn't get involved in. Very general sort of response. Harlan's dissent is a little different. He looks more particularly at the question of whether Baker's health is, is, is threatened by working more than whatever the number of hours, I don't remember if it's 40 or 50 or whatever it was, uh, hours a week. And so he takes seriously the claim of health and the justification that was given, and he pays attention to that. And so he decides in that context, the law was justified, but he doesn't give sort of blanket permission for the state to make any law of this sort. Now, that becomes important uh, about 20 years later. Holmes is still on the court. And up comes a case from Virginia called Buck v. Bell. 
And Buck v. Bell is the case that uh, achieves notoriety in American law because the court upheld a Virginia law that sterilized uh, those whom they found to be mentally deficient. And Holmes, with his throwaway line at the end of the case, says, because apparently this woman's mother was thought to have been mentally deficient, maybe her mother before her, and he says three generations of imbeciles, imbeciles are enough. Uh, and it's a, it's a case that is now looked back on with some horror by liberals and conservatives alike. What does he cite in that case as his precedent? Jacobson, <laughs> saying he interprets Jacobson there as a blanket and sort of universal permission for the state to regulate health in the same way that he more obviously, and Lochner says the state has a blanket permission to regulate the economy. Well, if you're a constitutional law nerd like I am, that's a stunning factoid. And I would also point out in the Buck v. Bell case, the lone dissenter was the great Catholic Minnesotan Pierce Butler. So let me let me offer my own factoid well, in that well, discussion. Good, good for Minnesota, but uh, but you know his problem in the case is that he didn't give a reason. <laughs> that's true. There was no Butler written dissent, and we could have right. the reasons. You know, would have been interesting what his reasons were in that case. And so here's the thing, if you use Jacobson in its widest meaning, that means you're buying into Buck v. Bell, but everybody's repudiated Buck v. Bell. I think even the court has explicitly repudiated Buck v. Bell. But I think what's going to have to happen is the precedent is going to have to be revisited in light of subsequent law. That's done all the time. Now, that doesn't mean the precedent will be overturned in that case, but this is emerging scientific evidence. It's very different from something that's been known for 100 years. So you'd have to say, well, does the precedent still apply or does it not apply? It is complicated, I think. Yeah. So just in terms of, you know, you've articulated well the, the way in which facts dictate whether a precedent should be applied in a particular right. context, but also you're, you seem to be saying, too, that there are some moral principles at stake as well and some and moral issues that guide whether or not at least principles of political theory and government roles and responsibilities, matters of personal autonomy, those seem to have some relevance here as well. What are those principles that judges should use when they're determining whether a precedent applies? Well, I certainly think that it's a, that, that basic question we started with, the responsibility for one's own health, is a moral question, right? I mean, it's a, it's a moral responsibility to care for yourself. And I guess in that sense, that's, a, well, it's a moral responsibility on others, right, to, to help and give care, but also presumably not to interfere with the person's own care for himself, right? Mm -hmm. So so it would be a strange thing if the, the government were to try to dictate our diet. Well, I guess it does that in little ways. I mean, it might forbid something that's known to be dangerous to the diet, right, that someone might try to persuade us to, uh, to, to take. But uh, I mean, that's where these things have to be argued out. So from a Catholic perspective, thinking about this issue, maybe I'll put it this way very starkly, that we have a government in many instances that confine people to their homes, force them to stop earning a living on some level, and now requires them to get vaccinated to keep their job so that we don't fall into the Buck v. Bell trap and say that the police power is merely unlimited because it can do that can do some noxious things. What might a Catholic say in terms of uh, pushing back and putting putting limits on the police power without falling into a kind of libertarian autonomy argument? I think you've already hinted at it, which is understanding these things as matters of justice. It, it seems to me 
at, at least this, that if it isn't true that those who are vaccinated are much less of a threat to public health than those who aren't vaccinated, this was said at first, it might not even be unreasonable. I mean, if it's a matter of smallpox, but in terms of this vaccine and this disease, it simply seems to be the case now, as best we can tell. Then it seems to me there's absolutely, there's simply absolutely no public health reason to require vaccination. What this was pointed out at the beginning of the dissent in, in the uh, Sixth Circuit case, the one that's now controlling, which allows that mandate to go ahead, um, that uh, the dissenter pointed out that the majority in the case had spoken only of the danger to the unvaccinated of, uh, of not being vaccinated. But it seems to me that's not a public health danger exactly. I mean, that's a personal danger. And given that it's a new vaccine, the long-term effects of which cannot be known. I mean, especially for young people, for Pete's sake. Wait, so it would be a gross injustice to deny young people jobs or education or the like. And yet that's exactly what's being done because uh, it's, it's easy to impose on them. Their whole future is ahead of them. And they're being told no education for you if you don't get vaccinated no job for you in the future, no future for you if you don't get vaccinated. And yet, I think if you press the people who are requiring this, the only thing they could say is, well, if they transmit the disease, it might, it might eventually wind up with, because of their contact with someone who is vulnerable. Uh, and it really does seem that you know, older people, <laughs> maybe it's professors, judges, and bureaucrats, you know, who are uh, working at home with their laptops are limiting life in serious ways for every uh, for other people. And if that's true, for no good reason. Now, if the vaccinated and the unvaccinated are just as contagious as each other, then it's for no good reason. We've been blessed to be speaking with Professor James R. Stoner Jr. from the Louisiana State University, where he's the director of the Eric Vogelin Institute. Professor Stoner, you've helped us unpack why facts of cases and the facts of an issue are very important, both for moral decision-making and judicial decision-making, and also helped us underscore the importance of thinking about these questions as matters of justice. So we are grateful for your uh, article, Vaccination and the Common Good, and your appearance on the Bridge Builder program today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for having me. Professor Stoner, thanks so much again. He is the author of Common Law Liberty, one of my absolute favorite books of political and legal theory. Highly encourage you to check that out. If you liked this conversation, definitely look at Professor Stoner's books and articles, which appear everywhere on public discourse and a number of other places as well. Professor Stoner, thanks for joining us in the Bridge Builder program today. Thanks so much, uh, Jason. And we'll be back in a moment with our practical tip for the week. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, and now it's time to dive into our practical tip of the week. Kit, what's on the plate? What can we tell our listeners about how they can live their faith in public life? Yeah, so an, another Supreme Court case that everyone's well aware of, Roe v. Wade, the 49th anniversary of that Supreme Court decision is coming up on January 22nd. And in the 50 years since the Supreme Court's abortion decision, it's safe to say that all of our rhetoric, both sides of the issue, all around, everything's just become very divisive over many years. 
And we want to help our listeners learn how to approach conversations about abortion in a way that can actually help change hearts and minds. So you can attend this event. It's called Equipped for Life, a fresh approach to conversations about abortion. It's coming up in just a few weeks on Saturday, February 5th at the University of St. Thomas in the Twin Cities. And the training, it's provided by Emily Albrecht, who we previously had on the podcast. She's with the Equal Rights Institute. And she's going to provide you with both knowledge of how to respond to common pro-choice arguments and give you the opportunity to actually practice dialoguing on some of those points. So you can get your tickets today by going to mncatholic.org forward slash equipped for life. Thanks everyone for tuning in. And if you're listening on the radio, you can always check us out on our podcast too. Just go to SoundCloud. That's where you'll find it or any of your favorite podcast apps. And you can find us on our YouTube channel for any of our extended conversations. While you're there, make sure to hit subscribe so that you'll always be alerted of any of our latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email. The address is show at mncatholic.org. And you can always find past episodes on our website, mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning into The Bridge Builder. Appreciate you checking us out and have a very blessed week. Thanks so much for listening. Jason Adkins, Minnesota Catholic Conference in Burkitt, Sapiniac. So long and God bless.